Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Janine. This is Get the Funk Out. That was Anushka Shankar with Dissolving Boundaries. Uh, to kick off today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Pedro Nagara. He's the Distinguished Professor of Education at the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. As I mentioned, I heard you on NPR, and there were so many things you were talking about with education and kids. Uh, it really resonated with me. I, I want to start by saying I was a horrible student. <laughs> I was not a reader. I didn't have a great home life and a terrible test taker. And my feeling is it's not a predictor of anything, those scores you get. No, I agree. Um, I mean, I, I, will, I would qualify that a little bit. Um, where I look at it is, you know, it, I'm not against testing. It's just a question of how we use it. And if we're using tests to try to ask other questions about kids, like uh, how much they're learning, where they might need support, um, uh, where they might uh, have some gaps in, in what they've learned, then that could be helpful. But if we're simply using tests to rank people, that's not helpful at all. And that's really what we do right now. We use the test to rank kids, in some cases rank teachers, and rank schools. And, and that is not helpful. We, we can know how to rank someone low. We do not help them get better. Yes. <laughs> and, and that's the real dilemma. And, and what we should be doing is using a variety of, of assessments to guide learning. And, and that's the big difference that yes. we're not seeing in, enough in schools. You know, uh, one of the things my dad taught me early on, because I wasn't a very good student and I moved in with him at 16, was if you're lost, sit up front, ask for help. And I couldn't do it at first. And when I started doing it, I noticed what a difference in my motivation. I went from really sometimes an F or a D to getting an A in math because I put the time in and it was just, you know, giving up that feeling of feeling insecure. Well, you know, that's the way people learn. You've got to be able to ask questions. You've got to be able to try it out. And then when you run into trouble, get help as you're running into trouble because you want to avoid uh, the, the, the tendency for students to get frustrated and just give up. Uh, but that means you have to have a teacher who's patient, who's actually inviting the questions, and a teacher who, who really understands the learning process and can anticipate where students might experience difficulty. Um, and that way, the teacher is able to help the student figure out what they did wrong and to correct their mistakes. If you think about how many Americans, for example, hate math, and, oh, yeah. and part, <laughs> part of the reason why we hate math so much is because of the way it's taught and because it isn't... Um, broken down and explained, and, and then we can't see how it applies, so it's too abstract. Um, but it, again, a good math teacher who understands learning is usually help, able to help students, particularly with, with the critical concepts that we know people need to understand to function in the world. You know, I often think if there was an update of the SAT to be able to put in the variables that make you up, your interests, your hobbies, your whatever, and we create questions that were more geared towards the individual, obviously this is fantasy. But you know what I'm saying? If you made it relevant to the students, perhaps they would do better. I, you know, I think so. And I think that's what we really should be striving for. You know, the SAT, uh, the College Board, um, a few months ago said they wanted to come up with a adversity index, which they would give kids who came from poor communities additional points. And I think they're missing the point. Yes. <laughs> the, the, the point is that the questions themselves are not good indicators of how much a person really knows. And um, and what we should, you know, we know that, that the knowledge is culturally bound, right? That 
is, is, is affected by where we live, by who we're in touch with, and what we're exposed to. And to assume that we're all exposed to the same things and the same information, it just, we know that that's just not how the, our country works. Right. And that there are huge gaps in experience and uh, in our cultural frame of reference. So uh, these assessment tests, uh, uh, like the SAT, or the ACT is not as bad as the SAT, mm -hmm. but the SAT um, is really shown to really predict um, privilege, and because uh, privileged kids do a lot better, and it's because it's biased towards their kinds of learning experiences and life experiences. Well, like I said, I bombed mine, and, and I actually learned to, and I think more teachers need to open this up, to ask for a project versus a test, if that was an option, I always grabbed towards the project. So I loved one of your talks um, you were giving, and you were saying, you know, the teacher that brought in the hermit crab, and, and that opened a whole... Do you want to talk about that, Lou? I love that. Sure. You know, we know from research that curiosity is can be a driver of achievement. That is, that when kids are... are when you tap into the natural curiosity of kids, uh, so they want to understand something, want to know about something, then they're motivated to want to learn it. And I, I gave an example of a teacher in Baltimore who brought a hermit crab into her classroom. This is a first grade classroom and had all the kids' attention. They were just totally curious about this creature that they'd never seen before. They wanted to know about, you know, what it eats and where it lives, its habitat. And uh, after talking to them about the crab and them looking and staring and asking questions, then she said, okay, I want you to write a story about the crab, right? And the kids sat there and drew and wrote stories and they were totally engaged. They were learning about their environment. They were trying, they were understanding nature and, and, and biology or beginning to, but they were also developing their language skills simultaneously. And when I asked the teacher, why did you bring in the crab? She said, because it taps into that curiosity. And mm -hmm. a, a picture from a textbook wouldn't do the same thing. And, you know, this is, uh, I, I like the example because it reminds people that innovative approaches to teaching don't have to rely on computers. You yes. can rely on the natural world and just get kids out of their seats and moving and asking questions because we need to teach kids the way they actually learn. And most kids don't learn from having someone stand up in front of them and talk to them. Yes, exactly. That's <laughs> how I was. Oh, like history class? Forget it. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me, how did you end up where you are now at UCLA? Well, you know, I've been in the field for about 30 years. I've been a teacher in um, Providence, Rhode Island, and in uh, Oakland, California, and worked with schools all around the country and, and throughout the world. And, you know, I've been motivated by uh, just recognizing how important education is to the kind of society we live in. Uh, if you, you think about so many of the social problems we face in this country, from poverty to the high incarceration rates we have to the ignorance we have in the country about climate change and, yes. and about our own history. Um, education's got to be a solution, but we have to ask ourselves, if education can help us solve these problems, what kind of education is likely to do that? And I don't think the way we educate kids does it now. I think that too many kids have the experience of going to school and it actually makes them less interested in learning, less interested in reading. Um, and even our best students are focused much more on grades than on learning itself. And so it really suggests we should do things differently. When, when kids get a good education, uh, when they're totally engaged, they want to learn more. And that's what we should be after. Schools that tap into that intrinsic desire that all people have to learn. 
Now, here's a question for you. How are you dealing with the challenges of cell phones and how it's hurting engagement? You know, I, I'm I'm as concerned about it I think lots of people are. And I, you know, I was just walking on to my work here at UCLA, and I saw somebody, a staff person, and while she's walking, she's on her phone, mm-hmm. uh, texting or doing something. Right. And I said hi to her, and then she said hi back. I said, you know, you're going to miss out on the beautiful yes. <laughs> the weather, the beautiful Thank day you. we have, the trees, the flowers. Yeah. She said, I know, but. That's the way we are now. We are so plugged in. We think we're going to miss something, and what we're missing is life. We're missing interactions with the people around us. And I worry about that with kids. Uh, when I was a child, I played outdoors. I, I learned so much from from uh, playing with friends and, and discovering things in my neighborhood. Um, kids today are much more glued to their, their screens. They're playing video games. They're on social media. They're not having the same degree of interaction and play. And... I'm concerned about the long-term effects on on child development. You know, I I'm in total agreement. Um, you want to take a second, grab some water. I wish I had some water. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, because I feel like uh, the cell phones are such a detriment. I think they're losing out in sleep. I think they're losing their attention, and yes, they're missing out on life. Yeah. And and I think that um, there's also a lot of evidence that uh, of kids and, and young people who are alienated, who are isolated, don't have friends. Um, oh, yes. I just saw a study today. It's, you know, one out of five young men between the ages of 16 and 25 reports having no friends. Oh. This is terrible. Um, we know that alienation is linked to depression, is linked to suicide. We've seen suicide rates around the country rise. Right. You know, all this uh, attention to video games and uh, uh, social media is, I think, contributing to the problem. It's not the only thing. Um, we, we have a, a you know a decline in just the kind of social clubs, uh, sports teams, um, bowling leagues. Yes. You know, they used to keep communities together, mm-hmm. and we still need that because people need people, and children can't raise themselves. And uh, I, I worry that we're losing a lot by uh, not paying attention to the need for building community. You know, I actually just drafted an op-ed piece about this because one of the things I talk about is there should be a no-cut sports policy where more kids can get involved. And it's not, you know, how great are you, but what's, you know, talk about teamwork and, you know, communication. And there's so much kids learn being on an after-school sport, whereas if they get cut or there's no opportunity, they're on the phone. They're not active. And that's, that's depressing right there. Absolutely. I was just talking to a young man yesterday. He's at a very large high school. There's like 3,000 kids. He said there were over 100 kids um, that that were competing for a position on the uh, JV soccer team, and they were only going to take 14 kids. Well, they need an intramural program. Every kid needs to play. Every kid needs to get out there moving and enjoy sports. And it shouldn't just be for the top premier athletes who, you know, have access to a lot more, you know, training and, and coaching and, you know, it, we're missing out on it. Same thing with music and theater. We need to give kids exposure to things because we, here's one of the things we've known for many years. Kids who are involved in sports and music and theater who write for the newspaper do better in school. Yeah. And part of the reason why they do better is they're forming relationships and a sense of belonging to school through those activities, but they're also developing other, other aspects of themselves like discipline and teamwork and, oh, yeah. and learning how to um, <coughs> deal with conflict. And those are all uh, valuable social experiences for a child in their development. Yeah. 
I mean, what you're talking about is like my high school experience. The busier I was, the better I did, the better time management I had. <coughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, if you I just, think it's still true. If you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Dr. Pedro Nogueira. Uh, he's Distinguished Professor of Education at the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Uh, I saw a talk of yours. I watched several videos <laughs> online, your TED Talk. Uh, and you talked about equity versus equality. Could you touch on that a little? Yeah, I think uh, most Americans, we, we believe in the concept of, of equality, of treating everyone uh, equally. Uh, but we know that's not how the world really works, that we're not all equal. Some people are taller, some people are richer, some people healthier uh, than others, um, and they have inherent advantages. When we focus on equity, we, we acknowledge the differences among us, uh, particularly in education. Some kids uh, don't have the same degree of support at home. Some kids need classes. Uh, some kids have learning uh, challenges. Um, and, and so we're forced to recognize that in order to make sure that all kids have the opportunity to learn, we have to eliminate the barriers to learning that get in the way. Uh, for some kids, the barriers might be hunger, might be lack of support at home. Um, for other kids, the, the issues might be more uh, psychological or emotional. But uh, when we when we broaden our focus to equity, we start to see the whole person. We recognize that their academic needs, their emotional and social needs are all connected, and it forces us to realize we can't focus narrowly on achievement and ignore what else is happening in a child's life. Right. One of the things I thought was so interesting I had read about was Howard Gardner's work with the theory of multiple intelligences. Yeah. And I bring this up because when I was listening to you on um, this NPR show, I thought, oh, I just wish someone had said, it's okay, you're not good at math because I see what you're doing, you know, in these other creative areas or music because, you know, sometimes we feel so stupid when we fail at something. Yeah, I think that and mistakes are part of learning, right? Uh, we right. all will experience uh, failure at some point when we get something wrong, but that's why we want an environment where it's okay to make mistakes, where you are learning from your mistakes and where you're getting feedback so you can get better. I, I try to tell teachers, you know, the real learning is not in the first submission. When a student turns in an assignment, we should treat that as the first draft oh, yeah. and give them feedback and, and help them understand what they need to do to improve. The real learning is in revising, and sometimes you have to revise something. <coughs> Sorry, I'm, it's okay. <laughs> I'm coughing. Um, you have to mo revise things multiple times. Right. And when you get a person to understand that, right, that that is that to apply themselves and to push for doing their best work, they start to produce better work <laughs> because they have a, a they have a you know a willingness to expend that extra energy to try to get it right, and that's what we should be after. Definitely. At the same time, we need teachers who get uh, understand that teaching is not about grading, it's about feedback. It's about helping a person to understand where they need to grow, how they need to get better, um, how they can learn from the mistakes they've made. So we need to rethink uh, the way we've been doing this uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, I think too often uh, kids think it's about getting done instead of the learning that happens. I try to tell my UCLA students all the time, don't let your focus on grades get in the way of learning things. Yes. Because that long-term learning means everything. Oh. Sorry. It's okay. So I'm going to let you go get water, but I'd love <laughs> to have you back on again. <laughs> I feel like I'm torturing you. Can you give out your website where people can reach out to you or find you? Sure. Um, you can look me up at um, UCLA um, on the faculty, and you'll see me, and you'll see a website there, a 
about my work and the work I'm doing. Fantastic. Thank you so much. All right, Jane, it's been great talking to you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Pedro Nogueira, and again, he is... uh, a distinguished professor of education at the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Uh, his complete bio is up on my show blog, which is getthefunkoutshow.kci.org, and I am on Twitter at moms underscore rock. But let me also tell you that KUCI is on Twitter at KUCIFM. We are on in Instagram, KUCIFM, Facebook, which is KUCI889. Uh, Tumblr, blog.kci.org. And if you're not familiar with all of our shows, we have a great eclectic mix of music and public affairs. Just visit www.kci.org. We're going to take uh, a little break, and then coming up at 9.30, I'm going to be joined by Marsha T. Danzig, founder of Yoga for Amputees Below Knee. She's a below-knee amputee, cancer survivor, kidney transplant recipient, and it's her birthday. So we're going to have to all wish her a happy birthday, maybe on Facebook. And uh, so she's coming up uh, at 9.30. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.